Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think there are many reasons why we think we can't draw and why that becomes a really big creative stumbling block for so many of us. Number one, I want to disabuse everybody who's listening to this that you need to be able to be artistic to draw. You don't. You don't even need to be creative. Drawing is not an artistic process, not in the way I'm talking about it. Drawing is a thinking process. And once you get to that point, you realize, I don't care if your drawing looks like the thing that you're trying to draw. Say to me that you're going to draw a picture of your car. Okay. And I say, that doesn't look like a car. That's a terrible drawing. Look, if you, I can get the idea that there are two circles that represents wheels and a box sitting on top of them that looks – if it's close enough to a car for me to say that's a car, that's all I care about. Because what I'm interested in is what is the idea that you're trying to convey, not the specifics of, of the details of does it look exactly like that. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. My pleasure, Srini. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I have come across your work by way of uh, our Mutual Speakers Bureau and through a number of our mutual friends. Uh, and so I've been familiar with it for quite some time, but it's our chance to really talk for the first time. And um, I've got a chance to, to dig into your new book. And I wanted to ask you because, you know, you start this book uh, with a dedication to your dad by saying, thanks for giving me wings. So I have to ask by, I have to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that have on the choices that you've made about your life and your career? Both my parents were pilots, um, uh, not professionally initially. Uh, both my parents were federal employees. Uh, my mother worked for the Federal Aviation Administration. She was an air traffic controller. And my dad was a forester and then a land management person. Um, and then joined the Air Force and became a pilot as well. So, Srini, it's interesting because in that dedication, in particular to my dad for giving me wings, mm -hmm. uh, I have incredibly powerful memories of growing up in Montana, uh, kind of out in the big sky uh, state, and learning how to fly. I mean, literally learning how to fly with my dad sitting in a little Cessna, a uh, little two-seat Cessna, for hours and hours and hours and hours, flying around through good weather and bad weather, um, and you, you do develop a really powerful bond with someone when you're going through this fairly stressful thing. And especially with my dad, it was great because he spent most of his career teaching in one way or another, and then being able to spend time with him in the plane, I learned a lot about how is a really, really effective way to explain to someone, especially in a stressful situation, what you really need them to do and why. And 
I don't know, Srini, have you ever spent any time in a small plane, a little Cessna or a Piper or something like that? You know, I have actually. And it was a, a really interesting story. I, I put on Facebook one day that I gave up this childhood dream that I had when I was five years old of wanting to fly a plane. Uh, and it was before, I think, my 35th birthday. And a friend of mine contacted me and said, meet me at the Irvine airport on Friday. And she bought me a flying lesson for my birthday. And did you did you like it? I mean, did you? Enjoy oh, I, it? I loved it. I loved it. It was so different than flying in a commercial plane. Like I, I remember looking down, especially because we flew out of Orange County. So basically, we flew along the Orange County coast, which is just breathtaking. Yeah. Well, and you'll know then. So you were sitting in the front seat, and I'm uh-huh. assuming that the instructor probably put you in the left seat, which mm-hmm. is the captain's seat. Uh, so now imagine doing that, and and and. You know, it is fairly stressful because you're in you're in many ways not to over over dramatize it, but you're flying a friggin' plane. You know, it's <laughs> like you're, you're driving a Volkswagen Beetle at nine thousand feet in the air, where you have complete control over where that airplane goes, not just turning left or right, but going up and down and slowing down, and and you're interacting with other aircraft that you often can't even see. So you've got a tremendous amount of sensory input that's coming into you, and of course, although the flying is lovely. For the first many hours that you're flying, it's it you know it's not a place where humans evolutionarily were meant to be. We're not meant to be in the air, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of anxieties and concerns that you have when you realize you know there is nothing underneath you. You know there's just thousands of feet of of empty air. And the reason I bring this up is because there's a lot, especially as and I hope you continue your, your flight training because I think it's a really really great life experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to remain calm, how to take. Uh, good authority and responsibility for your own decision making. I mean, the things that you decide now are going to have a direct and immediate impact upon your life three seconds from now. So to an even far greater degree than, say, driving a car. So the reason I bring this up is um, there's a lot that you need to learn, and it's a stressful environment. And it was great to spend the amount of time that I had with my dad, who's still around and still flies almost every day. Um, He's almost 80 years old, and he still flies uh, every single day uh, down in Florida. And whenever I visit him, we go up and fly, and it's a nice little refresher course on, number one, you want to stay calm. Mm -hmm. Number two, you want to provide a lot of support to your student. The last thing you want to do is come down on them like a ton of bricks. That's not going to get anybody where you want to go. You have to recognize that you're an expert in a particular field, and the person that you're working with is not. And you want to get them to be an expert, and there are good ways to do that and bad ways to do that. And so, Serena, you can imagine just the series of lessons because, in effect, what's happened is over the last 20 years, I've become really a teacher probably more than anything else. Yes, I do consulting work. I write my books. But the biggest uh, impact upon my, um, my career, you know, my business is as you going on the road and giving talks about, you know, my particular stick, what's my view of, of the world. And in my particular case, it's about how important it is to understand our visual mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm teaching people and I recognize I'm teaching them something that I'm an expert at. And like the time I spent with my dad, what would be a good way to teach someone and what would be a bad way to teach someone? And really, really important lessons that I learned there. So I hope that kind of obliquely answers question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Now now I I get why you literally said, thanks for giving me wings, because he quite literally gave you wings. He absolutely did. Yes. In, in, in fact, uh, some of the lessons in the book, uh, in particular towards the end of the book on how to teach, mm-hmm. which I think is teaching is for sort of the, the fourth most critical part of running a business. Uh, the first part is being a leader. The second part is being able to sell. The third part is being able to innovate. And then the fourth part in my mind is then being able to pass that along to someone else. 
And much of the fourth part are lessons that I derived from watching how really good teachers used visuals in particular in stressful and complicated situations to clarify things and make it understandable. And that's really, I would say, probably the most important lesson in my work is where the visual mind becomes so powerful for us is our sense of vision is extraordinarily capable. I mean, it's it's a miracle that vision works at all. And when I talk about vision, I, I literally, Srini, mean this miraculous process of our brain and our eyes turning light in the form of photons into meaning in our head hundreds of times a second throughout our entire life, converting light into meaning. And when we understand how the process of that works, it gives us a really, really good problem-solving toolkit and a really extraordinarily powerful way of literally looking at the world to become a better leader, a better salesperson, a better innovator, Mm -hmm. and a better teacher. So all these roads kind of veer apart and then all converge again (laughs) back when the idea is, hey, look, the world in front of us is complicated. We've got difficult decisions to make. Let's make sure that we're using all the horsepower of our brain to make those decisions in the best, most informed way that we can. This is Dan over here. I'm saying use your visual mind as well. And it's something we tend to neglect. And that's why I wrote my book. So we won't. So we'll get into into a lot of depth around using the visual mind for all the things that you're talking about. But um, I'm curious kind of, you know, what the trajectory of your career has been from sort of, you know, flying planes with your your dad and your mom and dad being a pilot, because it seems like, you know, despite what you've learned from them, you've definitely taken a very different path. And and I can relate to that because I know I've done nothing similar to what either of my parents have done. Um, So I'm very curious kind of, you know, what have sort of been the major inflection points in your career that have led to what you're doing now? I love uh, – uh, thank you for that question because I've, I've wanted to share this for a long time. So I remember – forget the flying and – for it, it, I always loved to draw. You know, as a little kid, some of my earliest memories are of sitting there at the kitchen table or, you know, at school and drawing a picture with a crayon or a colored pencil or something. And I always loved it um, because I think in a way I, – I, I, only in hindsight do I believe this, but – I think I understood that if I could draw something, it would be a way of kind of capturing it and maybe owning it for a little bit to get a better sense of what is that thing about. If I could draw it, then I could know it. And, you know, the funny thing is all kids draw. You know, I have children. You know, anytime you go by a school, you go by the kindergarten. What are they doing? They're drawing. And it's it's a really natural way for uh, us when we're little to try to capture things that are in our mind. And we don't have the ability yet to write, so it's kind of our only option, drawing. I just never gave up doing it, and I loved it, and I realized that the drawing mattered to me. And so I went all the way through university and you know, high school and university and everything, and I just continued to draw along the way. Um, and then I got into the business world, and I realized that that made me very weird because people in business don't draw, (laughs) you know, so I would find myself years later there, you know, in New York, in some fancy office building, doing a consultative sales engagement for a big financial services institution or something. And you're in the scary boardroom with all, all the financial services, uh, people. And I would be the guy who five minutes into the meeting would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I do understand what we're talking about. I think, but I'm going to go up here to the whiteboard or the flip chart and draw a couple of circles and say, if I understand you correctly, you guys over there are talking about this circle here, and we'll name it, you know, our business. And then you folks over there, you're talking about this other circle over here. And I draw another one, and I would say, this is our competitor. 
And then you all are talking about the intersection of those with some new uh, regulatory body. And let's draw a circle that represents that. And now let's put an arrow through all of them and say, and this is the path we're talking about. Did I get it right? Well, sometimes I'd get the drawing right. Sometimes I'd get it wrong. That doesn't matter. What mattered was that I drew. And Serena, you could imagine this. You've been in a thousand sales meetings yourselves. The meeting temperature completely changes. If there were was political stuff in the room, you go up and you draw a picture, that washes away. If there was a great sense of competition or of competitiveness back and forth, all of that goes away because we're all suddenly looking at this picture and we're saying, actually, that is kind of close or, or maybe more importantly, someone else would take the pen and say, no, Dan, I, I don't think you got it at all. What I really think we're discussing is this piece over here and then they draw a square over on the side. And all of the sudden, instead of looking at each other across the table with political issues or agendas or whatever, we're looking at this picture that's emerging on the wall. And we now have this shared thinking space. And it's really powerful. So that's what I did. And I just continued to draw and found that it was remarkably successful for me and for my project teams and the clients that I was able to work with to clarify what they needed to do. And we'd have a picture then when it was all done that we could look at and say, why did we make this decision? Well, here, let me show you. And then, you know, walk back through the picture again. Very powerful. So I would say to answer your specific question, I drew when I was little. I loved to draw when I was in high school. And I'm going to add one more layer into this since we've got the time. When I was in college, when I went to university, I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, And uh, so I took all my pre-med courses at university. So my Uh, chemistry, organic chemistry, molecular biology, biologies, etc. So a lot of science, obviously. Um, But then as a way out at university, because it was pretty stressful taking all those science courses, and pre-med tracks are always very competitive, um, as as kind of just a way to let off some steam, I also decided to go ahead and take some painting classes, uh, just channeling that love that I'd have when I was younger of, of, of drawing. Uh, And I had this crazy moment. And and Serena, I remember this, it was it was amazing, because In one morning, I went to my organic chemistry class. And in organic chemistry, uh, you know, you're building models of organic compounds. And the models are literally those kind of stick and ball models of carbon atoms bonding with, with, uh, you know, oxygen atoms. And you take these balls and you stick them together. And what they teach you in organic chemistry is that it's really a very visual science. It's almost about building three-dimensional models. The, The molecules will only form in these particular ways. And there are a bunch of rules around that. And so it's all kind of about visual composition to build these molecules. And then, so that was in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I'd go into painting class and they'd be teaching us, you know, kind of introductory painting composition. How do you take a canvas and locate objects on that canvas uh, in these almost mathematical ways so that they become very appealing to the human eye. What are what's like the golden rectangle and what are good positions of, of triangles and rules of three? And I thought, wait a minute, these two courses that are so completely different are actually teaching me exactly the same thing. Organic chemistry works because the pieces literally fit together in these particular ways that make sense. Painting composition works for exactly the same reason. And that's, I would say, you asked for an inflection point. I would say that was an epiphany point, realizing, wait a minute, if pictures can be used to understand science and pictures can be used to understand art, why can't we use pictures and these rules of composition to help us understand concepts 
business concepts, social concepts, political concepts uh, that normally are not illustrated but tend to be talked about and written about. And that, to me, was the big breakthrough. And then um, I took that with me into my first job uh, where I was a design director at a local newspaper um, and and, um, putting pieces together on a page to tell a story. And that then led into the next big inflection point, which was – and Srini, tell me to stop if, if I'm going on too long, but um, should I keep going? Yeah, Can I just barrel along? Because there's, one, no, there's probably two, two more important parts to this story that, yeah. that, that really make it work. I had an opportunity uh, a couple of years after university. I was living here in San Francisco, as I say, doing, being a design director at a local newspaper. And my girlfriend from university, who had been a Russian and Soviet studies major – now keep in mind, this is back in the 1980s, the mid and late 1980s uh, – uh, she was desperate to get a job in what was then still the Soviet Union uh, to try to put to get, put her language skills to work. And in those days, back in the late 80s, you couldn't just show up in the Soviet Union. You had to get a visa and it, you had to go through a security clearance and all this kind of stuff. So she did all that and she finally got a job as a nanny at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And so that was a year-long gig and you know it got her what she wanted, which was a chance to actually see what things were truly like in the Soviet Union. Six months into that, she called me up and she said, I have a job opportunity here. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to take it. And they, it, it's with a magazine that's getting started and they need a designer. Do you want to move to Moscow and you'll be hired immediately as a design director on this new magazine, this English and Russian language magazine? And I thought, why not? I mean, what, what a great adventure. So I kind of packed up and, and moved to the Soviet Union not speaking a word of Russian, not knowing anything about the place, um, except, you know, growing up again with my father being in the Air Force, the Soviet Union was always the bad guy, you know, when I was growing up in the Cold War. And so I arrived in Moscow and um, within a couple of years, well, within a couple of months, actually, found myself running an advertising agency there. Um, and it was really, really powerful because I couldn't communicate with my staff in Russian, at least not initially. I eventually learned to speak Russian. I ended up staying on for several years. Uh, but we did everything with pictures. And when explaining concepts, we're trying to set up a business, what's involved? Well, these are the pieces. And I would talk and I would draw. And it was amazing how, how fluidly we could communicate, passing the pen back and forth, speaking our own languages, but drawing things out and trying to reach some sort of clarity around it. Real breakthrough moment. I ended up uh, starting this successful advertising agency there, which I was able to then sell after about seven years over there. And then I I, um, moved back to New York and went back into consulting again, learning or taking advantage of what I had learned over all those years. And what I had really learned was when you're facing a complex concept, it could be anything. It's a business problem. It's a, it's a, a financial problem. It's a project management problem. It's uh, any kind of challenge whatsoever, a technical problem. Um, you can really, really clarify it radically by drawing simple pictures. And the beauty of drawing those pictures is you will clarify things that you didn't even know about for yourself. And more importantly, you and your team, even if you don't speak the same language, will begin to see the same pictures emerge. And it's extraordinary. So that's the story of my career. After uh, after a couple of years of doing that, a few f- folks in New York said, Dan, you know, there's something very powerful about those pictures that you draw. You should write a book. I did. That was the back of the napkin. That was almost 10 years ago. Uh, and that was another major inflection point uh, because that really got me kind of an, an audience and an opportunity to share the message on a much broader stage, which is what brings us to uh, today. 
Okay, cool. Um, lots of questions that, that come from that. Um, you know, there's something really interesting about this because you seem to have maintained this lifelong love of something that you discovered as a kid. And I am wondering not why people don't discover it because I've asked so many people that question. I am wondering why so many people fail to maintain this lifelong love of something based on, on sort of your experience that you've seen. Um, that's one question from that. Uh, another one is, you know, of all the limiting narratives that I've heard around creativity, the one that I can't draw seems to be incredibly universal. Um, and I'm curious, you know, where that comes from, where does it start? Because I think on some level, I still believe that even though I've done, you know, a handful of drawing projects and you've seen our brand, it's highly visual, but I don't draw any of that stuff. Uh, right. So I'm just curious about those two things. Well, let's actually take the, I can't draw one first, okay. because I think that will feed back into your other question. Uh, the first thing I like to say is, yes, I can't draw either. None of us can draw very, very well without a lot of practice. It, you know, the, I think there are many reasons why we think we can't draw and why that becomes a really big creative stumbling block for so many of us. Number one, I want to disabuse everybody who's listening to this that you need to be able to be artistic to draw. You don't. You don't even need to be creative. Drawing is not an artistic process, not in the way I'm talking about it. Drawing is a thinking process. And once you get to that point, you realize, I don't care if your drawing looks like the thing that you're trying to draw. Say to me that you're going to draw a picture of your car. Okay. And I say, that doesn't look like a car. That's a terrible drawing. Look, if you, I can get the idea that there are two circles that represents wheels and a box sitting on top of them that looks – if it's close enough to a car for me to say that's a car, that's all I care about. Because what I'm interested in is what is the idea that you're trying to convey not the specifics of, of the details of does it look exactly like that. So once we establish that, then the drawing becomes quite easy because then step number two, and believe me, Srini, I've seen it because I do a lot of training and, and as you nailed it, three quarters of all the people in every room, every time I do the training say, Dan, this sounds great, but I can't draw it. Well, I can cure you of that worry in about three minutes because all I do is say, okay, everybody, you have a pen, you've got a blank sheet of paper. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to put your pen on that paper and just move your hand around and make a circle. Everybody can do that. Okay, make another circle. Good. All right, fair enough. Now lift up your pen and put it down somewhere else and make a square or a shape that's kind of close to a square. And everybody can do that. Okay, and now let's do the same thing and make a triangle. Great. Now let's draw an arrow that connects the three of those all the way through. And guess what? You've just drawn. That's all that's involved. If you can draw a circle, a square, a triangle, uh, a stick figure, a line, a blob. That's all you need. Those are the basic building blocks. And then, you know, that took 30 seconds. And then we add another two and a half minutes to say, okay, now if you combine a couple of those shapes, two circles sitting next to each other, about the same size, put a little triangle pointing down in between them, and then a couple of lines, and you've got yourself a bicycle. And it's undeniably a bicycle. Okay, and if we could draw that, what else do we want to draw? Well, how about if we draw a little database, if we're like with a technical group? Okay, let's draw a little box and put a circle maybe on the top and the bottom and say, that's a database. Okay. And then over here, there's another little box and that's a computer. And now we draw a line connecting them. Okay. You've got the idea. Keep going. So we can do concepts. We can do physical things. We could say, how would we draw a map? All right. Well, how about if we draw two arrows, one vertical and one horizontal, and they intersect in the middle. Great. And then we say, this is north, south, east, west, or it could be some other coordinate system. And let's start to map in objects. What's in the northwest quadrant? or what's in the southeast quadrant, and how big are those things? You can map them out. Great, you've built a whole little competitive landscape there. 
And now let's take another picture. Let's draw a series of arrows, maybe running from left to right, just three or four or five arrows, and let's label them A, B, C, D. What have we done? We've just drawn a project plan. Great. Now, can we write under each one of those arrows what needs to happen at each step of the project plan? The point I'm trying to make is every one of these is a very powerful but simple uh, visual um, construction that's just made from these very basic shapes, and that's the kind of drawing I'm talking about. And then the, the sort of the cherry on top, the, the, the thing that adds the, the greatest amount of, of um, connection to our drawings is in one of those quadrants or on one of those timelines or somewhere, draw a little stick figure and then just label that as me and say, where do you fit within this? And then draw another little stick figure over here and say, okay, that's you. And then draw another one over here. This is my competitor. Another one over here. This is my customer. And then draw some circles around them. I hope this is making sense. I oh, hope yeah. you're seeing that that's the kind of drawing I'm talking about. And, and you know, I've talked about it now for a few minutes. When you're actually doing this on a piece of paper in a room with other people with guidance, everybody is drawing within three minutes. Nobody is worried about it anymore. We're not trying to draw beautiful pictures like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo would have done. We're just trying to draw, draw the most basic uh, clarifications of underlying ideas in our mind. So that's kind of the I can't draw part. The mm -hmm. answer is, yes, you can. Don't worry about it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why people say I can't draw. And I think the biggest one goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. Think about children. Go into a kindergarten. Watch them. Everybody in that room is drawing with confidence until – the teacher comes along right around first or second grade and says, that's not a dog. Dogs don't look like that. That's a terrible drawing of a dog. And now all of a sudden you're crushed and you're never going to draw again. That's one of the things that happens is someone along the way says, that's not a good representation of X. Therefore, you can't draw. And when we're young and impressionable, that's a pretty good excuse not to do it anymore. Okay, fine. And then the second reason I think so few people continue to draw on, and this is one that goes right to the heart of some things that I think are, are a bit flawed about uh, our educational process, <laughs> is there's a tendency, okay, kindergartners draw, first graders draw. By the time you're in first grade, you're getting into your alphabet. You're learning some spelling and some vocabulary. Initially, you're learning to read. Second grade, you're typically a pretty accomplished reader. You're moving on to chapter books. And the moment that you can read well, they take the drawings away. It's as if the drawings were considered training wheels on this bicycle of intelligence, where the ultimate goal is to learn to talk and read and write. It's insane. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely insane. The, the Drawing isn't training wheels. Drawing is the front wheel of the bicycle. The back wheel of the bicycle is verbal communication. We need, we have, you know, we have multiple brains. We have multiple minds in our brain. We have verbal minds and verbal intelligence. But we will talk about this more, believe me, because we're not going to get off this call until we do. But you have a ton of visual intelligence and an extraordinary amount of visual processing that lies dormant when you're reading and writing and needs to be activated. And so there's a horrific thing that happens to most of us is this belief that drawing is not a valuable, viable way of thinking. It's a good way to learn how to do real thinking, which is reading and writing. And then once we know how to do that, forget the drawing. It's insane that we do that because we're effectively cutting out well over half of our thinking process. Um, but then there's all kinds of other subtle things that start to play into it where you know, we start to say, well, a smart person is the one who can talk the best. 
or read the most or write the most. That's a smart person. That's intelligence. Well, yeah, not so fast. That's a part of intelligence. But an equally important, in my mind, perhaps more important part of intelligence is your ability to actually visualize things that aren't in front of you. Can you imagine how these pieces might fit together in a different confirmation or in a different time or in the future? It's not, it, it take, take uh, well, right now we come out of this political season where everything is such a hot button and I really don't want to <laughs> go down that path. Yeah. But just take, you know, everything's so contentious right now. You can't even kind of pick out of the air just a, a, a topic. But let's just pick one. Let's, let's take uh, healthcare. Okay, let's just imagine Obamacare, whatever we're going to do with it or not do with it. Who knows right now? Everything's up in the air. But imagine trying to describe healthcare, the healthcare system in the United States with words alone. You couldn't. I mean, it is a multi-layered, multi-component, multi-dimensional set of interactions of all kinds of different groups and influences. You have to map it out. You have to be able to draw a picture of who are the pieces and how do they fit together. And that's just one political issue. Now you start to look at other ones. There is no way we're going to solve global climate change by writing reports about it. The things that we're looking at, this is systems level thinking. These are pieces that impact each other, many of which are very hard to measure and most of which are very difficult to literally see. But we have to try to map them out and say, how does this thing influence that thing? And the only way we're going to do that is by mapping them out. And that means drawing our pictures. Serena, I'm going to take a breath. Does this make sense? That so was far? awesome. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So what about the, the second piece of, of maintaining this lifelong love of something? Yeah, it's a tricky one to answer, isn't it? I yeah. guess um, some people are lucky. I think there's many pieces to it. Some people are lucky, and I see that my, in my own children. Um, at some point, it seems in my memory and with my impression of my kids, who are now getting a little older. I mean, they're 17 and 12 now, so... I've had them for a little while and, and know them pretty well. I have two girls. Um, it does become clear, I think, when you or a young person that you know discovers something that they really love. It's, it's, it's hard to nail it down, but you know it when you see it. And I'm thinking my younger daughter um, loves to draw, and she draws very much the way I drew. Uh, very quickly without a lot of uh, worry. And, and uh, that's one of the gifts that I have was, uh, or maybe it was practice or gift, whatever it was, but the ability to say, well, you know, here's the pen. I'll just draw the circles. Srini, the same way I'm describing it to you. My younger daughter has a really great ability to do that and loves to draw, which of course warms my heart. But then I also see um, her in school and, you know, she's a good student. My, my, both my daughters are, are, are good students I think they enjoy school, but it's amazing to me. She's learning history right now, and she's learning the history of uh, World War II. And uh, the way it's being taught is very, very dry. And I keep pulling out the whiteboard and saying, you know, I, I'm a history buff too, and I tend to think about things in terms of maps and, and timelines rather than written narratives. I love stories, of course. But I love stories in the context of where are these taking place on the continent, you know, where are the pieces, et cetera. And I found that um, if you can – she loves the history when she can draw it out. But when it's a matter of reading you know, three, paragraph, th three chapters in this history book, somehow the fun, the blood gets sort of wrung out of it. It's not fun anymore. And I'm hoping for her sake uh, that – 
that love of the visual will carry her through to being interested in these things. You know, Srini, I don't know why. I guess people either don't discover, in some cases, something that they really love and feel passionate about when they're young. Either they don't discover it, or maybe they did, and for whatever reason, it was not something that was supported. And I'm going to have to add this into our earlier part of the conversation. In my case, I do know that I loved to draw, and some of my earliest memories were being encouraged mightily by my parents, again, to do that. Boy, did I get, you know, every every birthday I got boxes of crayons and new pieces of paper. Encouragement. Obviously, my parents sensed in me that this was something I loved to do uh, and encouraged me to do it. Mm-hmm. And what's really fascinating to me, and I'd be curious what you think about this, is I see in my life and that of people that I know well, people I've worked with uh, throughout my career, the things that people really love to do seem to be the things that those people are really good at doing, and we're really good at doing the things that we love to do. And I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg. Do you do this thing because you're really good at it and it gives you pleasure because you're not worried about doing it well? Or is it because you loved it so much you did it enough to where you built up a lot of confidence, to where you can just do something that almost looks magical to someone else. Do do you have a thought about that? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow, so many because you know I've I've gotten so many different perspectives on this after seven hundred interviews. Um, you know, like I've I've talked to Cal Newport who who talks about the idea of being so good and they can't ignore you, and uh, you know it's weird. Like I have always loved writing. I think the more I did it, the more I loved it. You know, to the point where it led me to the opportunity to write books. Um, but you know, part of me is kind of like, okay, if let's say that in my career I'm going to write two books. I don't think I'm going to stop writing if I only ever publish two books. I'm going to wake up and still write every day because it's just what I do. It's, it's such a deep part of who I am and, and it's something that in so many ways defines my life. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's interesting also to hear you talk about encouragement because I had I had it in, in different contexts. You know, in music, I had band directors who were incredibly encouraging for, for no obvious reason, you know, which... And, and that was a huge source of motivation for me because I wanted to live up to whatever expectation they set. They were like, you're going to be really good. You're going to make Allstate Band. And they told me that in seventh grade, and I did. Um, not because I, I, I'm you know blessed with any musical talent whatsoever, uh, but for some reason I took to it. And, and I think a lot of it had to do with that early encouragement. So I, I do think it's a really interesting sort of chicken and egg situation. Uh, and it's funny because I'm writing about you know this very chicken and egg idea around creativity and how it actually you know fulfills our leads to our happiness um, mm-hmm. when we're expressing ourselves. I think the other thing that was really interesting that you brought up was this idea. Um, you don't you, you don't even want to get me started on a rant on education because I've had so many of them on the podcast. Uh, yeah. But I, I think the the thing that was really interesting to me is is it's something that I noticed when I walked through the the Barnes and Noble uh, section where you know parents go to get material to homeschool their kids, and if you actually walk through the aisle and you start in kindergarten and you go all the way up to 12th grade, what you'll actually start to see is exactly what you're talking about. Less and less and less opportunity for creative self-expression. And it just, it, it's so odd to me that, that we do that to people when we basically are saying creativity and innovation are, are traits that we really, you know, prize in our working world. Well, do we though? And I don't want to be dark about this. Um, you know, there's some been some... <laughs> Really fascinating studies back to education again, and our point here is not to wag our finger at the teachers. As I mentioned to kids in school, I I know their teachers well. Uh, I really appreciate what what teachers do. I think they have a very hard job and they tend to be very, um, uh, you know, criticized unfairly in many cases, etc. But it's it's fascinating to me, too, because if if you think about what a teacher is trying to do, in a classroom. On the one hand, obviously, they're trying to encourage creativity, but there have been some fascinating studies uh, that have come up over the last couple of years about if you actually ask a teacher, do you want creativity from your students? Most of the time, the answer truly is no, I don't, because the more creative they are, the less that they're answering the question in the prescribed way or doing the process in the way that I'm supposed to be teaching them or they're becoming unruly, or they're becoming daydreamers, or they're not focused on task. And all these things are legitimate uh, concerns in a way. But I wonder, so many of us in business hear about this all the time. We need to be more innovative. We need our people to be more creative. And why is it hard for us to be creative? And I know through all the interviews you've done, you've heard a thousand different perspectives on this, but one of them 
has to be at what point in school were you really truly encouraged consistently and with reward for it to truly be creative and it isn't that many times i mean it certainly wasn't when you took your sat test or when you were worried about getting your a's and b's in in class you know there's this there's this old peter drucker uh, uh management ism that is just so powerful and i i want i'm probably going to butcher the quote but it's going to be close enough that which gets measured is that which gets managed and so what they're telling us is in business and this is true especially and now i'm going to go into a lot of different territory now we have a, we're we're certainly in the in the era of big data now we're in the data of the era of data overwhelm we have measured quantitative measurements of everything. And every time I check my email on Google, they're collecting quantitative information about what was my reaction to this particular email and what was this search. And we know this, all of this is being collected, this massive amount of data. Well, that's great, but what we're trying to do is look for what are the pieces of data, the measurements that we have that we can most effectively manage. And we then set ourselves goals to try to increase the measurements of those things. So one of the areas in which we're seeing creativity, frankly, die in a a strange way is this data analysis of things that people like. And I'm, I'm not making a lot of sense, so let me try to be articulate here for a moment. I recently launched a new book. Great. And I've been doing, that's why we're talking. I've been doing a PR campaign around that. And it's been really fascinating this time around. This is actually my fifth book. And this one now, the data analytics are there to understand more deeply than books of mine in the past. What are audiences online reacting positively to and negatively to? And what's actually happening in a way is I'm saying, well, this marketing message worked really, really well for this audience. Therefore, I should amplify that marketing message and turn off some of these other ones that didn't work so well, which is great because it means that I have a better marketing message in terms of quantitative measures and more people are buying the book. And that's great because I want people to buy the book. That's a really good thing. But at the same time, what I'm also learning is not to take risks because what I'm learning is these are the things that worked, so do more of those. And these other ones that didn't work, we don't know why they didn't work. All we know is that the data didn't come in so well, so don't do those anymore. So what I see happening, we see this in movies. We see this in storytelling. It's like a default to the mean. We keep measuring success, and the more we measure of it, the more we start going down the path of doing the same thing over and over again because the data told us that was the safe way to sell more of that good. And that's great because we'll sell more of that thing. But what's not great about it is we're not thinking that creatively anymore. Serena, does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, that, that was, did that ring yeah. any bells at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, having gone through a book launch myself, it, it makes me think about a lot of things that maybe I would have done differently. I, it, it does it in so many different ways. And I'm thinking about this in the context of talks that I even give to people and why people are so insistent on following, you know, sort of a set best practice or something. I think we we get in our heads that just because something has been proven to work, it's the best way to do it when, in fact, breaking that thing that might be proven to work might actually lead to a better way to do it. Right. Hey, I want to give you an example of this. It's just top of mind. And and I, I don't say this to offend anyone in the business world, but one of the best examples of this is I draw 
obviously, and when I'm doing my presentations, I need to be able to draw on my computer screen, and I've needed to do that for 10 years, which means 10 years ago, I went out and bought a clunky old, um, by today's standards, clunky old Lenovo touchscreen running Windows, I don't know, Windows 7 or whatever it was 10 years ago. And you might remember, these were some of the first tablet PCs that were out there. And what they were is they were, um, you know, laptop computers that you could open up and they typically came with a stylus and you could draw on the screen. And, you know, there was a lot of Windows software that was optimized for these and lots of manufacturers, Dell, Lenovo, HP, uh, Acer, you know, all the big hardware manufacturers, Samsung, made tablet PCs. Uh, but they didn't sell. None of, they didn't sell. And, and um, so people thought, well, there's no reason to go ahead and support these anymore because really there's no business case for being able to draw on the screen of a computer because we've had these for years, but they don't sell. They're, they've been kind of a dead product. And then along comes, of course, Steve Jobs, who says, look, here's the iPad. And, and you know, people from Microsoft and other places would look at it and say, yeah, we've had tablets out there for a while. This is going to be Apple's swan song. This is not going to work. We've had tablet computers out there for years, and they don't sell, and the iPad is going to be an utter failure for the same reason. Well, what happens? Three months later, the entire PC industry is turned upside down because now all anybody wants is to have a touchscreen tablet. This, to me, is one of the great case studies, unexplored, that I want to look into more deeply. For years, you had tablet PCs available that enabled on-screen drawing. And then along comes this little iPad that is deemed, and, and you, you, you remember this, you can go back, yeah. pretty much every technical pundit said the iPad is going to be a failure, and every one of them was wrong. Why? Because the data from sales of tablet PCs indicated people don't want to draw on screen, or that's how we interpreted it. We were wrong. All what the data were actually telling us is touchscreen computers are really great if you can encourage people to have a sound business case for what you're going to do with touch. And all of a sudden, what Steve Jobs also rolled out at the same time is let's have a whole bunch of applications that are are amplified, that are emphasized enormously because you simply interact with them by touching things. And, you know, wow. So it's a different marketing message. It's exactly that. Yeah, well, it's very, very similar a hardware to what had already existed, but it's a different, innovative approach on thinking about how to use it. And if you had lived as so many of the Windows-based companies did on the sales data, they they killed themselves by saying sales proved to us nobody wants a touchscreen computer. How wrong can you be? They were thinking about it incorrectly because they were only looking at the data. And they're looking at the wrong data and interpreting it incorrectly. And that's what I'm worried about with big data. And, you know, there was a great, great article several years ago in the New York Times. I'm sorry, in the New Yorker magazine. I don't remember the name of the application, but it was kind of an early version of Shazam. Mm -hmm. um, it Conceptually, what some guys had done, this was a great, a great article uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, what some computer scientists had done is they'd gone in and done a kind of a digital analysis of all of the top uh, pop songs, you know, for the last 50 years. And what they'd been able to do is by, you know, uh, digitizing all this music and then running it through these algorithms, they were looking for differences in tempo, uh, sort of story arcs within the music, where does the music crescendo and where does it go back down again? 
Uh, and they were looking for these trends. And what they were able to do or begin to do is predict uh, the likelihood of a new song becoming a pop hit or not by comparing it to these algorithms. And uh, there was one album that came out, and this was, yes, yeah, 10 years ago or so, that this software as a test had run through this album, and it was from a new artist uh, that no one had ever heard of before. And um, it was amazing because this one album, according to this algorithm, would generate four number one hits. And it was Nora Jones' first album, and it generated four number one hits. It was 100%. And what they were doing is they're saying, wait, we don't need to be creative anymore. We've got these algorithms that now tell us how to write music that will trigger human emotion, how to write stories that will captivate us. And now we see it with this huge trend, which I'm very unsettled by over the last couple of years, of trying to build habit-forming software products. Uh We now know enough about human psychology and human emotion broken down into algorithms and, and digital data to theoretically be able to create things that people in spite of themselves are going to love because they hit these particular sort of uh, metaphorical notes in, in our psyche. And we can do that now. And that scares the piss out of me. You know, that's, that's craziness. Because what eventually, you know, we're not that far away, I suppose, from having – it's a good and bad, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I can open GarageBand, and I can create a piece of music that I never would have been able to compose a few years ago, and that's magnificent. But what, And I think that's a lovely creative thing. But what scares me a little bit more is, you know, we're not very far away from, frankly, the computers just writing the music. And every time I hear a new song – the computer knows I'm going to love it because yeah. it knows exactly what I'm going to like. It's probably where we're going and it scares me. Well, yeah, it's really interesting because I'm literally on the section of my book about habit forming products and how they actually get in the way of our creativity. Um, you know, with dopamine distraction, I mean, we could do a whole episode oh, yeah. on, on just that alone. It, it's funny, my, my business partner, Brian mentioned recently that the chief ethicist at Google actually wrote a piece about this. I've got to track it down somewhere, but it is, it is a really sort of interesting, um, place that we're at, you know, is, is, you know, like how does, how do we stay creative in a world where we're perpetually connected? And I, I think it really lies in, in our willingness to disconnect, um, which I, I think actually makes a perfect transition to what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is this idea of how how you train the visual mind to do a combination of all the things that you talk about, which is lead, sell, teach, and innovate. Um, but you know, I think where I want to start with that is to talk about the power of the visual mind. Uh, you alluded to it earlier in our conversation, but why is it that this is such an effective way to do all of these things? Okay, so so let's start with some data. Just running with where the conversation. <laughs> let me give you some data points. So the the first data point is around sheer. sheer visual horsepower capacity of the human brain so you imagine the human brain you know uh, this this organ this gray matter folded organ you know you can hold it kind of in the palm of your hand it's about this big this is our brain okay so by weight probably one-third of your brain of your entire brain by weight all the neurons that are in there one-third of them are dedicated only to the processing of vision More of your brain is dedicated to processing vision than any other function that the brain has. In fact, if one-third is dedicated almost entirely to vision, you could stretch that and say, well, another third of the brain by weight is dedicated to the processing of vision in concert with other sensory inputs. So you were talking about probably more than half of your brain altogether is there to just help you process vision. Wow, that's a lot. 
Okay, so that's data point number one. More than half your brain is there to help you process vision. Data point number two, let's talk about the brain as an organ. It's a relatively small organ. Uh, you, the human brain, it typically accounts for about 2% of your total body weight. Only 2% uh, of your weight is accounted for by your brain. And yet your brain at any given moment is accounting for about 20% of your total energy burn. So this little organ in your body that, you know, only 2% of your weight is accounting for one-fifth of all of the energy that you're burning. Okay, so let's, let's back up through these two data points and see what this tells us. Number one, our brain is clearly a very, very important organ for our body. And number two, vision is clearly very important to our brain. So if you add that up, by virtue of being human, we are essentially walking, talking, visual processing machines. By weight, more of our brain is dedicated to vision than any other thing that we do. And it's interesting to me how rarely we think about the power of vision as an incredible process to try to understand and emulate to learn how to problem solve. Because if you think about where all those calories that we're burning are going in our brain activity, they're going to, again, taking light in front of us, what we see in front of our eyes, and converting it into meaning. And it is a very energy-intensive process because there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen. And the amazing part is all of it happens unconsciously. None of us is actively aware when we open our eyes of saying, of, of intentionally scanning the world and looking for anything that's red or scanning the world and looking for different shapes and edges. We don't think about it like that, but that is what our visual mind is doing all of the time. So what I like to do is say, imagine the creative and problem-solving ability we would have if we could intentionally seize on that visual power and use it uh, in ways that we want to instead of just unconsciously. And then I thought, well, how would we do that? Well, number one, we'd have to understand what is the process of vision. So at a, at a biomechanical level, vision is a process. And, you know, you could say that walking is a process to get from point A to B a certain, you know, your body is going to do these certain things, certain muscles are going to pull and certain joints are going to move. And pretty much all of us walk in more or less the same way. In a parallel fashion, the process of vision is these things take place in these orders and these steps, and they happen in the same order for all of us. Vision works the same for every one of us. And those steps can be broken down into, at a high level, a series of, of six different what are called visual pathways or visual work streams that are working in parallel all the time that your eyes are open to pull this, this light in and rapidly turn it into meaning. And when we say rapidly, it's about a tenth of a second. The process of a, of a photon of light coming into your retina and, and being turned into an idea in your mind, what does that mean, takes about a tenth of a second. And that's going on thousands of times a second involving billions and billions of neurons all working in concert, looking for edges, scanning the world, doing all these amazing things. So if you break that process down, you end up with a series of these six pathways. And what's really remarkable about the six is that the names of the pathways are hauntingly familiar for anyone who's ever taken sort of fourth grade English composition class or taken even a very beginning journalism class. And what I'm referring to is... Uh, you know, if, if you're going to be writing a news article, you've got to account for the who, what, where, when, and why. Kind of the, the five W's is the old trick from, from school days. If you write your article, you've got to say who it is, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how if you want. Well, guess what? 
the names of the visual pathways are almost exactly the same. You've got the what pathway, the how much pathway, the where pathway, the when pathway, the how pathway, and they come all together into the why pathway. And those are literally the names of these different uh, visual pathways. And what you can do is you can take them apart and say, what is the job of each one of these pathways? Well, in order to make a picture make sense to our brain, each pathway goes to work on that picture looking for some very specific type of visual information. Something's location, for example, or something's size, or something's position relative to something else, a whole bunch of these things. Srini, I tell you this story because to me, this was the big breakthrough. Uh, the big discovery was uh, UC San Diego, uh, one of the heads of the neurophysiology department down there, a doctor named V.S. Ramachandran, mm -hmm. wrote uh, a fascinating series of books starting about 15 years ago on trying to understand more effectively how does the brain, among other things, process vision. And he really um, sort of shepherded in this idea that if you look at all these different aspects of brain science, in particular as they focus on vision, that's where you can drive these different visual pathways. And they've now pretty much been validated. At a high level, yes, this is how vision works. So the breakthrough for me was realizing, wait a minute, if you can say that vision is a process built on six steps, then guess what? I now know, first of all, that vision is predictable. That is, if I'm trying to show you something and I want it to be, I want you to get it really, really quickly, I can predict exactly which picture your brain is looking for in exactly which order to best understand this concept. How do I know that? Well, because I just reverse engineered what your brain is going to do with the picture anyway. It's going to look for these pieces. So all I've done is say I will intentionally amplify each of those six pieces according to six different little pictures. I'll add them up. I'll teach you how to draw those six. And now you have this magic toolkit that says when you want to break a problem down live or, you know, in just thinking it through on your own, you now know which picture to draw. You start out by drawing a little portrait that says, these are the people that are involved in this challenge. That's all you do. And then the next picture you draw is you draw a little chart that says, and how many of them are there? Well, I have a couple of these, but I have a lot of those. Okay. And then the next picture you draw is a little map that shows what is the location or position of those characters uh, relative to each other. And you draw your little XY map and you say, some are over here and some are over here. Some are close, some are far. And then the fourth uh, uh, work stream is the when pathway. You draw a little timeline that says these characters in these numbers, in these positions are now acting out in this sequence. And then you draw your fifth picture, which is the how picture, which is a flow chart that puts all those pieces together and says, okay, so if I really take my problem apart, these are all the players. These are all the underlying elements. These are the quantities in which they exist or the numbers in which they're trending. Here's their positions relative to each other, either geographically or conceptually. And here's the sequence in which they're interacting. And I put all that together and I guess I say, guess what? I have now deconstructed my problem in a simple visual map, visual set of pictures that anybody can understand. And then I stitch it all back together and I again at the end and I say, okay, and so this is what I now know. This is what I should do. And that becomes my last, my kind of my why picture. That was a lot of words, a lot of mechanistic thinking. But Srini, the point I want to make is that's how we tap into the power of, of, of our visual engine. We intentionally decide to uh, look at a problem in front of us by visually breaking it down into its underlying elements according to these different work streams. 
we draw a simple picture for each one of those work streams, and then we play them back in order, and we now see our problem almost in slow motion as if it's been taken apart, and we can now share it with someone else and say, now we see how to solve it because here's the pieces. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I'd like to look at it through the lens of a concrete example, just so we have something else to work with. Um, you know, like, so me as a person who spends most of my days writing, working on books, interviewing people and, you know, creating content. Um, I'm curious, you know, how can I take this and apply it to my own creative process on a day-to-day -day basis um, as a writer or somebody who reads a lot of books? Like, where could I, I potentially apply this? Okay, so so let's let's um, take that kind of backwards. Uh, when I sit down to read something, and it could be a news article, it could be a novel, uh, it could be a scientific a scientific paper. Um, typically, if the piece has been written well, it's going to take me through a whole bunch of of steps to introduce me to the concepts that are in that particular story. So if it's a news story, it's going to be pretty straightforward. It's simply going to say, you know, these people did this thing in this place, and here's the outcome. If it's a novel, it's going to introduce me to a character by putting that character in a scene, and then it's going to describe something that happens in that scene, and then perhaps introduce another character. So what I like to do in all cases is I create visual maps of the stories or the articles that I'm reading. And what I mean by that is I, I, I start reading something and I have a blank sheet of paper next to me. The first time a character is mentioned, I just make a little circle on my piece of paper and I write down the name of that character. So a perfect example, I don't know, let's just say I'm reading the Harry Potter books. It, it could be anything. It could be a analysis of the healthcare industry or whatever, it doesn't matter. But anything, any written piece is going to start by identifying some characters. So it says, you know, okay, it introduces me to Harry. So I just make a little circle and I say, okay, there's Harry. And then the next thing it does is he says, you know, his stepmother was Aunt Petunia. So, okay, Aunt Petunia. And then there's Uncle Vernon. Okay, so I make a little circle. And this seems like it's a drag, but it's not. Because what's going to happen is by the time I get to chapter three, I'm going to have lost track of all of those different characters. And now I've got this little map with me that helps me say, okay, these are the people, and then I can start to link them together. So now when a new character appears in the story, I say, or a new name pops up, wait, do I already know who this person is? Or, or did I meet this person before? No. And the reason this works really well is in particular when you're looking at a, a law, a legal document, or um, often a political document, or even a scientific document, um, it is very helpful to me when I'm reading something complicated to have this kind of map that I'm working out that is taking it apart piece by piece so that I can actually see how the pieces work. Now, the beauty of it is if I'm going to tell you a story, if I'm going to make a presentation to you about an idea, I just reverse the process. I start out by drawing the picture and saying, here's the people. And now all I need to do is write out what is the interaction of them, uh, and that becomes my written piece. Now, I'm going to give you one of the reasons I use Harry Potter as an example is, uh, you know, whether you're a fan of the Harry Potter books or not, it's undeniable that they are the most successful series of books in all time, uh, making J.K. Rowling the most successful author in terms of book sales ever. And that's great. Clearly a very, very talented writer uh, and an amazing thinker. But here's what very few people know about J.K. Rowling is that she also drew everything out. She drew these character maps before she wrote the book. She drew maps of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. She drew maps of the Wizarding World. She drew timelines to indicate how are these characters going to interact with each other over this long, long period of time that the, that the books cover.
And I found it remarkable that this was always kind of kept a secret because for those of us, I like to write too. I believe, Srini, that drawing and writing go together like, I don't know, peanut butter and chocolate. They are not two different things. They are amplified. They're made more effective when you do the two of them together. Um, now that's a little bit abstract. I hope that helps you. I can give oh, yeah. you more no, no, that, examples, that, but that I hope that makes sense. Awesome. That was awesome. Um, wow. Uh, you have, have genuinely packed this with so many valuable insights. Uh, I've, I've just been blown away by everything you've shared. This is one of those conversations I'll be going back to over and over again. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it is what we talked about right from the beginning. It is that lucky person, which I hope can be all of us, who early on discovered something that they truly love and has been able to work on it and improve it, dig into it through their life. To me, something that is unmistakable is truly someone's passion for their subject that even if they wanted to not do it, they couldn't. They'd still have to do it. That, to me, is what makes something truly unmistakable. Mm, amazing. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, danrome.com, just my name, D-A-N-R-O-A-M.com. And, and Srini, if I can just take one moment, um, I have been writing these books over the last 10 years, as I mentioned. And about five years ago, I was inspired by Sal Khan and the Khan Academy. And I saw these simple videos he was making to explain mathematical concepts. And I thought, well... If he can do it for math, uh, I can do it for visuals. So I started something called the napkinacademy.com. It's just one word, napkinacademy.com, which is the video-based, uh, again, inspired by the, by the Khan Academy, simple hand-drawn video-based uh, lessons of all of the lessons that are in all of my books. Now, it is a paid service. It's a subscription-based service. But if someone's interested, many, many of the videos are available there for free. And I would encourage people to take a look because um, – I have a lot of guest stars that come in and share, and we, we draw pictures together. Uh, and this is something, in fact, I'm really looking forward to over the next six months. I'm starting a whole new Draw Together series where uh, I'll be doing interviews similar to what you're doing with me with other authors, but we'll be doing it uh, as well by drawing together, which is going to be fun. And those are going to be put up on the Napkin Academy as well. So uh, that's the best place, napkinacademy.com. Uh, very active community there. We've got about 3,000 people around the world from 43 countries who uh, – have been with me over the years and we share our drawings and our visual thinking and our visual insights. And it's a, a lot of fun. Hmm. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next time on the unmistakable creative. I guess if somebody wants to change their, their current situation, I, one, one of my favorite quotes is, is if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. And that's from Tony Robbins. So you just kind of have to try and shake things up and, and kind of step outside your comfort zone because I know it might seem easy um, from the, you know, for, from looking from it from the outside, but it's it's certainly not. You just have to find a way to shake things up. That's that's all you can do. And, and you have to take personal responsibility for where you are at this point in time right now because once you accept responsibility and really own your shit, then that gives you a an opportunity to change that. Nathan Chan joins us to talk about the power of doing things that might not work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.